This is Dan Zhang um, coming up with Subversity. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Today we're going to have a treat for you uh, as part of the graduation exercises. One of the speakers at UC Irvine's own graduation uh, that was spread out over two weeks actually uh, was this noted uh, sports uh, figure, uh, Olympic gold medalist Greg Luganis. Uh, of uh, Samoan and Swedish descent. He talked about uh, the uh, effect of his having HIV ever since he won two gold medals at the Olympics. And he's lived with it for 23 years. And so he told graduating seniors at UC Irvine School of the Arts and Physical Sciences that HIV is not a death sentence. So let's go to that day uh, last Friday when he spoke at UC Irvine uh, School of the Arts and we'll go to the uh, the uh, the information uh, that the talk he gave go to the program that was sent out on video feed by UC Irvine and we'll do that right now this is Dan Zhang with Subversity on KUCI the last subversity of this quarter, and we'll be taking a break and hopefully coming back in the fall, a summer break. Uh, maybe well-deserved, eh? And thank you very much for your support during the pledge drive. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. We'll be going to the uh, graduation ceremony for uh, Greg Luganis, who, was, uh, who, gra- who uh, spoke at his first ever graduation uh, last Friday. Uh, he's a UCI alum from the drama department, and um, it was actually the first ever graduation he attended. Uh, I have colleagues here who remember him as a student uh, in the drama department, and uh, we will uh, be airing his talk, his very inspirational talk, to UCI graduates in the School of the Arts as well as the Trevor's, as well as the School of Physical Sciences, uh, where he asks graduates to remain creative. Um, so this is the uh, inspirational talk from someone who has gone through a lot, won two gold medals, disclosed his HIV status, and... Uh, lived to talk about it. Like he said, I'm still here, he said. So that's uh, our... Today, we're going to... The first part of this program will be airing that. Dahlia Roosevelt Rodriguez, baccalaureate candidate in the Claire Trevor School of the Arts in singing the national anthem. Oh, <laughs> 
You know, I'm, I'm sorry, Dahlia, I, I wasn't paying attention. Could you do that again? No, uh, thank you very much. That was wonderful. I am Chancellor Michael Drake, and on behalf of the faculty of the University of California, Irvine, welcome to the commencement ceremony for the Claire Trevor School of the Arts and the School of Physical Sciences. Joining me today on the platform are the following Chief Academic and Administrative Officers of the University and other participants in the ceremony. Colleagues, when I call your name, please stand and remain standing. Audience, please hold your applause until the end. Professor Dennis Castellano, Baccalaureate Master Marshal. Please hold your applause and screams until the... Neil Sahota, UC Alumni Association Class of 1997, 2000, and MBA Class of 2003, Mace Marshall. Professor Virginia Trimble, School of Physical Sciences. Daniel G. Aldrich III, Interim Vice Chancellor, University Advancement. Sharon Salinger, Dean, Division of Undergraduate Education. Thomas Parham, Interim Vice Chancellor, Student Affairs. Joseph S. Lewis, Dean, Claire Trevor, School of the Arts. Our featured speaker will be joining us later. Stephen Barker, Associate Dean, Claire Trevor, School of the Arts. Kenneth Jonda, Dean, School of Physical Sciences. John Heminger, Vice Chancellor for Research. Robert Dodens, Associate Dean, School of Physical Sciences. Professor Michael Dennens, University Marshal, and Professor Donald Hill, Platform Party Marshal. I wish also, also to acknowledge the presence on the platform of distinguished faculty from the Claire Trevor School of the Arts and the School of Physical Sciences. Will the faculty please stand as well? And now. You may be seated, thank you. For the class of 2011, we are holding 11 ceremonies over two weeks, celebrating and recognizing 
8,934 students who have earned undergraduate and graduate degrees during this past academic year. On June 4th, we recognized 104 students who were awarded a Doctor of Medicine degree and 567 students who were awarded Master's and Doctoral degrees. The commencement program lists the names of all graduating students and indicates those who have been nominated for summa cum laude, magna cum laude, and cum laude academic honors this year. Now uh, the rest all graduate O-laude. Never, never mind. <clears throat> uh, these students can be recognized by the gold cords they wear as part of their academic regalia. The program also lists the names of students who have been nominated to academic honor societies and those who have received awards and prizes. These students are wearing blue cords. Dean Lewis, uh, please come forward. Oh, I'm not, let me say, I think we're going to do that later, aren't we? So, Dean Lewis, please return to your seat. <laughs> Dean Jonda, please present the candidates for the degree Bachelor of Science from the School of Physical Sciences. Today, we begin by awarding a Bachelor of Science degree in Physics posthumously to Robert Garrett Kennedy. Accepting the degree on his behalf this is are his mother and father, Maria Elena and Robert Kennedy, and his brothers, Michael and Andrew, and Robert's godmother, the Honorable Yvette Paloazilos. Paloazilos. Candidates for the degree of Bachelor of Science from the School of Physical Sciences, please rise and remain standing. <laughs> Chancellor Drake, I present the candidates for the degree of Bachelor of Science. Dean Lewis, please present the candidates for the degrees of Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Fine Arts, and Bachelor of Music from the Claire, Claire Trevor School of the Arts. Will the candidates for the degrees of Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Fine Arts, Bachelor of Music, from the Claire Trevor School of the Arts, please rise and remain standing. <laughs> Chancellor Drake, I present the candidates for the degrees of Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Fine Arts, and Bachelor of Music.
by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Regents of the University of California, I confer upon you the Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Fine Arts, Bachelor of Music, and Bachelor of Science degrees for which you have been presented. Congratulations. And now, new bachelors, I invite you to take part in a time-honored academic tradition. Since the days when students were identified by their caps and gowns, those who had not yet earned the degree wore the tassel on the right side of the mortarboard. When the degree was conferred, the scholar moved the tassel to the left and joined a select company. So now, following that academic tradition, and in recognition of your new status, bachelors, Turn your tassels. And now please be seated. It is now my privilege to introduce Dean Lewis, who will present to you one of this university's most luminous alumni, who will give our commencement address this evening. Dean Lewis. Thank you, Chancellor Drake. It is a pleasure to introduce our featured speaker, Greg Luganis. Greg Luganis is considered to be one of the world's best divers. He's a five-time world champion, a five-time FINA World Cup champion, and he holds 47 national championship titles. He started competing in diving at age nine, and by the time he was 16, he won his first Olympic medal in 1976, silver. He then prepared for the 1980 Olympic team, but was unable to complete to compete due to a boycott of the Moscow Games. Greg had a record-setting performance in 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, garnering two goals and was the first diver to break the 700-point barrier on men's platform in Olympic history. Never one to give up, even in the face of adversity, Greg pulled off one of the most publicized moments in sports history. After hitting his head on the board in the prelims, he came back to win the three-meter finals as if the accident never happened. Competing with divers half his age on the platform, he pulled out an incredible dive to win two goals in 1988, becoming the first man in history of the sport to win two back-to-back -back gold medals in two consecutive Olympic Games. Greg graduated from UCI with a degree in drama in 1983. He is one of UCI's most notable alumni, contributing to the arts through his acting, writings, charities, and service to others. Greg was diagnosed HIV positive in 1988 and revealed his HIV status in his 1995 autobiography, Breaking the Surface which spent five weeks at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Greg's second book, 
for the life of your dog, a complete guide to having a dog from adoption and birth through sickness and health, was published in 1999. Greg was born, raised, and still resides in California. Please give a warm welcome to Greg Luganus. Thank you. This is Zot. Yeah. This is so bizarre. This is my first graduation that I ever attended. Um, I didn't make it to my high school graduation. I graduated in January. So, and then I was working three part-time time jobs and, and, and working. So, at, uh, you know, three part-time jobs and diving at that time. So um, I didn't make it to my high school reunion or my high school uh, graduation. And I didn't make it to my college graduation because I think I was diving. So I was a little busy. You know, um, you know, I was trying to figure out, since I've never been to one, you know, what the heck do I say? You know, I mean, I, I remember being here in school and, uh, you know, performing, um, you, know, in, you know, in the drama department and also, yeah, yay, yay drama. And, and dance, and dance, okay, go dancers. Um, the one thing that I wanted to probably um, encourage you to, uh, you know, as you go forward, is really to explore your imagination, you know, and don't, and don't give up on miracles. Miracles happen, you know. It's, it's, it's a miracle that I'm here, you know, for one. You know, because I... I was diagnosed with HIV uh, 23 years ago. 23 years ago, we didn't have much, uh, much at all, you know, as far as treatment. We only had ACT, and that treatment was two pills every four hours around the clock. Six months prior to the Olympic Games in 1988, I was diagnosed HIV positive. And so, think about it. I mean, you're training for the Olympic Games, okay? Every four hours, I had a little alarm clock on my watch that went off every four hours to remind me that I had a compromised immune system. And at that time, we thought of HIV as a death sentence. You know, so, I mean, it, it truly is a miracle that I'm, you know, that I'm still here, you know, after 23 years. Um, also, I, you know, just... To share with you my growing up, I mean, I didn't have the best self-esteem because when I started school, I stuttered, and I was in remedial reading. I'm dyslexic, so I didn't know about dyslexia until um, my freshman year in college. I was given dyslexia as a vocabulary word in my freshman English, English class, and people would, my, all my friends would call me, you know, stupid, retard, and all that stuff. And I believed it. You know, I really believed it. Um, so it was, you know, there's all of those self-esteem issue battles that we all go through. You know, and I'm really trying to encourage you to, you know, stay the course. I mean, explore your imagination, what you, what, what, what's possible, what might be possible, you know, and believe in it. And, um, you know, it, and it can happen. You know, I... 
At 16, I was an Olympic silver medalist. I had to go back to high school after winning an Olympic silver medal. You know, and it, you know that was that was a hard time for me because I was gen generally pretty shy, pretty shy kid, and so. Um, and also, I mean, everybody saw me on TV, and I felt like a loser because I went there to win. I didn't go there to go take second. So then the 1980 boycott happened, wasn't able to achieve my dream there. And then at the World Championships in 1982, I was introduced we we go reverse order of finish so you know we're I, I was the last diver to be introduced um last diver in, in the order of finals and i remember alexander portinoff being introduced as olympic gold medalist 1980 and then i was introduced as olympic silver medalist 1976 and I just looked at him, and I was like, okay, you're a gold medalist because I wasn't there. You know? And I was like, I'll show you. You know, and so that was the motivation to get to go through that, that world championships. I mean, that was, ooh, that fueled my fire. And so I, I wanted, I always wanted my diving to speak for itself. I didn't want to have to speak for my diving. And so how am I going to do that? It's through my performance. You know, I always looked at, at my diving as a performance. You know, that's what I was good at. That's what I was taught to do, is perform. And so, as it turned out, I'm going through the competition, coming up to my last dive. The winning score is flashing on the board, scoreboard. Well, the score that was flashing on the scoreboard was mine. I didn't have to do my last dive, you know, to win. I mean, I remember this one time a coach came up to me and said, you know what, do a cannonball for your last dive. <laughs> you know, and in that, in that instance, that was the Olympic trials in 1980, he said that. And and that happened at the Olympic trials at that, in, in 1980, and, and my score was flashing, and I'm like going, oh my god, I can do a cannonball and still win. And so I'm taking my approach for my last dive, and I'm saying to myself, don't do a cannonball, don't do a cannonball, don't do a cannonball. And I did a cannonball. So, you know, but I learned my lesson. You know, I learned my lesson there. So I really kind of wanted to um, stick it to Alexander. So um, I nailed my last dive. You know, you learn lessons. You learn what you're capable of doing. You know, and don't ever underestimate yourself. You know, don't under, underestimate, you know, yourself. And, and also, um, I have a tendency of trusting. I trust first, ask questions later. Gets me in a heck of a lot of trouble. But... You know what? I'd rather trust, you know, than be so cynical. And, um, you know, you're, you're going to meet some people along the way that will take advantage. You know, and the one thing that I encourage you to do is maintain your integrity. You know? Do what you say. 
you know, what, and say what you do. I mean, mean what you say and mean what, you know, and, and follow through. Say what you mean and mean what you say. I mean, it's just really, really, you know, really, really important. Um, flexibility is also, to be successful in life, I mean, you have to be flexible. I mean, as, as a diver, we had to be flexible physically. You know, but it's, it's important to be flexible in other ways, emotionally. You know, because flexibility is an opportunity to challenge yourself, to approach a situation in a way that you may not have thought about. You know, things aren't going to always go your way. But you can't get stuck on that what-if thinking. What if? What if this happens? What if that happens? You know, as soon as I start going to that what-if place, and this is a lesson that I've learned, is that I start looking for solutions. What's the solution? You know, get to the solution as, as quickly as possible. You know, and those are incredibly valuable lessons, you know, to learn. You know, the other thing that, uh, you know, that uh, is really important, especially in, in any situation, um, you need to know your homework. Okay, you get homework in, in school and you know what you to do, but in the real world, I mean, you have to know what your homework is. You know, as, as actors, as dancers, um, and anything. You know, you guys are, have creative minds. You know, that's what, you know, you know that's what's going to fuel you. You know, find your passions. One thing that Coach John Wooden said was, the desire to win is useless without the desire to prepare. You know, and prepare. Do your homework. You know, but you have to know what your homework is. And like I said, I mean, truly, truly challenge your imagination. That, that's probably the most important thing that I'd like to try to get through to you is you never know what's possible. You know, be kind. You know, act out of kindness, act, act out of love. You know, because then that's what you're going to surround yourself with. And that's what it's going to be. Okay. Everybody, raise your right hand. Okay. In my life, say, I promise to participate with all my heart, soul, and imagination and not judge myself and others. Congratulations. <laughs> For my first one, that's not bad. Congratulations to our 
Clear Turf School Yards candidates. <laughs> Are you going to be graduating when you come across here? <laughs> All right. Now we come to the part of the ceremony when the graduates are recognized as they cross the stage. While this process takes some time to recognize all the baccalaureate degree candidates, we are continuing this tradition at the request of the students whom we honor today. Associate Dean Barker, Professors Lynch and Fowler, please come forward to recognize the graduates from the Claire Trevor School of the Arts. Bachelors, please come forward. So that was a um, um, excerpt from that day's events of the UC Irvine graduation where uh, Greg Luganis talked about being HIV positive for 23 years. It's not a death sentence, he says, and he called on graduating seniors and uh, PhD students and master's students to, uh, be, uh, to explore their imagination and to tr- trust other people, even though he, he himself got in trouble for that. And so that was advice from um, gay Asian um, Olympic star Greg Luganis, who went to school here in Irvine and got his degree in drama and also dabbled in dance. dance. And, um, but that was his first graduation last Friday. And so we're happy to bring you that here on Subversity on this last show of this quarter system here on KUCI. Uh, Subversity will be taking a break and hopefully we'll come back in the fall. But in the meantime, we may be airing uh, programs online, uh, including interviews with authors, especially of new books, um, especially on Vietnam. And so this is Dan Zhang with Subversity. And we're going to bring you another program here today uh, as we finish with the um, graduation events. And uh, we'll be uh, bringing you the program from our regular uh, program uh, that we air, Making Contact. And this is from the National Radio Project. And given that Greg talked about the importance of uh, that HIV is not a death sentence, uh, Let's see if it makes sense to um, bring you some program on a related issue. And, uh, and this is uh, Sex, Lies, and the Classroom. An earlier edition of Making Contact covered this. And so we'll go to that right now. week on Making Contact. A discussion of abstinence takes place within a comprehensive sex education program. The 1973 Roe v. Wade decision was hailed as a victory by many advocates for a woman's right to choose. 
But decades later, many young people still lack the resources to make informed choices about sex, choices that could affect the rest of their lives. We didn't prepare the young person with enough information or education, but we will blame youth for STDs, STIs, for contracting HIV, for um, adolescent pregnancy. On this edition, we bring you a discussion about sex education in schools, federal funding for sex ed, and how advocacy groups and parents are making their voices heard on the issue. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Almost all of us received some form of sex ed growing up, but for many of us, there was a lot left out of those classes. Over the years, many school curriculums have grown to truly educate students in what they'll need to know to navigate society. It's a term that's grown to be called comprehensive sex ed. Comprehensive sex ed includes information that's appropriate and accessible for students with disabilities, English language learners, students of all races, genders, sexual orientations, religious, ethnic, and cultural backgrounds. Comprehensive sex ed also teaches respect for marriage and all types of committed relationships. But even as times have changed, in many schools, that quality sexuality education is still missing. In 2010, 29 states and Puerto Rico received federal funds to teach what's known as abstinence only until marriage. All too frequently, medically inaccurate and biased information is being given out in the classroom. For this week's program, we asked independent producer and health reporter Julieta Kuznir to facilitate a discussion between advocates and educators about the state of sex education in America's schools. With us, we have Philida Burlingame, the Sex Education Policy Director for the American Civil Liberties Union of Northern California. Thank you for being here, Philida. Thanks for having me. And we also have LaRonda Crosby-Johnson with the Bay Area Communities for Health Education. Hi. And Gabriela Valle, the Director of Community Education and Mobilization for California Latinas for Reproductive Justice. She's on the line with us from Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having us. LaRonda, you have been working inside the classroom and outside the classroom with parents and community members. Can you tell us about what you think is essential to include in a truly comprehensive sex education curriculum? I think one thing that sort of worked against this whole conversation has been that it's been portrayed that there's abstinence education on one side and this word comprehensive sex education on another side. First of all, most people don't even know what that means. A discussion of abstinence takes place within a comprehensive sex education program. Um, A comprehensive sex education program is going to not only give um, young people medically accurate information about contraception, a discussion opportunity around abstinence as a way of preventing pregnancy, as a way of preventing STDs, but it's also giving young people an opportunity to practice skills of negotiation, problem-solving skills, conflict resolution skills, decision-making skills. In a really strong comprehensive sex education program, there is a discussion of values so that every young person in there is able to fit this information into the value system that works for their life. 
I encourage young people to go home and have this conversation. Find out what your grandmother thinks about it. Find out what your aunties. Yeah, they're going to get red in the face and blush, and someone may even run screaming from the room. But when they come back, um, you know, ask them what kind of information they received. Um, Tell them a little bit about what's going on in your classroom. So it opens up dialogue. There's this assumption sometimes when the abstinence only until marriage folks walk in the room that that's who they're talking to, is they're talking to abstinent teenagers. And that often is not the case. So you may be talking to a 15-year-old that already has two kids, and she's feeling totally outside of that conversation. So that, to me, is one of the foundations of comprehensive sex ed. It doesn't negate their intelligence. They're the experts on adolescents right now because they're the only people teenagers at this very moment, and they know what's going on, and they really will tell you what they need if we listen. We're about to listen to a clip produced by Charlie Stewart and rhrealitycheck.org. In this clip, we'll hear students in Savannah, Georgia, talk to the reporter about choosing the best program, a sex education curriculum they're receiving in public high schools. Let's hear this clip. For more than a dozen years, the state of Georgia has taught a program called Choosing the Best in its public schools, an abstinence from sex before marriage curriculum that teaches that condoms don't work. Abstinence Plus, I don't even think Abstinence Plus mentions contraception methods at all. It's like, don't have sex, sex is bad, you don't have sex before you're married. Um, Even when you're married, you only have certain types of sex. It's just ridiculous. Abstinence Plus supposedly mentions contraception. And but then only doesn't. to the negative. It actually yeah. does, but it's only negative. It's like condoms do not work at all. Birth control will kill you. Mm-hmm. Do not touch this stuff at all. Don't have sex until you're married because that will be the only thing that will protect you. I would say sex education in Chatham County shouldn't be called sex education. It should be called a religion class or something because it includes so much stuff on morals and values of a specific religion that not everybody follows. But if you want to be in that class, you have to go by, like, you'll die if you have sex or having sex before marriage is bad. Okay, that was just a clip produced by Charlie Stewart and rhrealitycheck.org. You can go to that website and see more clips on sexuality education across the nation. So we just heard students from Savannah, Georgia, talking to us about what their sexual health curriculum looks like. What do you two think? You two have been working in the classroom and working with school districts across the state for quite a while now. How does that compare to what you have seen? I believe what they are saying about the instruction of the Choosing the Best program is absolutely accurate in terms of these abstinence-only until marriage programs, when they do mention condoms and contraception, it's only in order to try to convince students that they are ineffective, that they shouldn't use them, that often these programs say that HIV can pass through a latex condom, which it cannot. And the goal is to dissuade young people from taking advantage of these you know, important methods of preventing unintended pregnancy, STIs, etc. And it's really a scandal that these programs are being presented to young people and being still funded with federal dollars. Philip Burlingham, you work with ACLU, working with school districts across the state. Can you talk to us about any time that you've seen anything remotely like this outside of Savannah, Georgia? Yeah, I mean, in California, we now have a good law on the books 
which is very helpful. But there are still school districts in the state that are using abstinence-only until marriage curricula. And even here in the Bay Area, which many people consider kind of progressive heartland, there are still school districts. About a year ago, I worked with parents and community members in um, Fremont, which is in the Bay Area, using a curriculum very similar to that. And LaRonda and I are both working in Sonoma County with, again, with parents and community members to try to get rid of another federally funded abstinence-only agency that, again, says the same thing. If you're not abstinent until you get married, only negative things will happen to you, and they present misinformation about condoms and contraception. So much as we would like to say, oh, well, this is a problem of the Deep South or whatever, it's really not true. This is a pervasive issue that affects uh, school districts across the country. And can you give us any examples from curriculum that you've seen, perhaps in California, that also furthers this absence-only-until-marriage ideology? The clip that you just played was from Choosing the Best, and the first time that that curriculum came to my attention was when I first started working on this issue in the mid-90s. And at that time, these programs were even more extreme than they are today. And Choosing the Best, I believe it was Choosing the Best, had a little segment on how difficult it was to use condoms. And it said that there were 10 steps required to use a condom. And one of the steps was to uh, wash the genital area with Lysol before and after condom use, which if you just stop to think about it, that is the most grotesque, appalling thing. Some advocates contacted Lysol and said, are you aware that this curriculum is promoting your product in this way? And ultimately, Lysol sent a uh, cease and desist letter to the publisher saying you cannot use our product in, in this way. And I'm pretty sure it was choosing the best, which is disappointing that it's still around and, you know, it's being funded by federal dollars in Georgia today. California, as far as I know, there are there are no districts that I know that are using that particular program, but there are many that they all wear kind of the same clothes. A lot of them use the same lingo. Um, they follow the same kind of marching orders, and, you know, they're, they're relatively interchangeable. Gabriela Valle, you work with Latino families and young people as well as school districts. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experience around um, sexual health education, what you've seen what I wanted to add uh, from our work with um, Latino communities is the inclusion of parents. One of the things that we do is offer trainings that actually help parents get involved in dialogue around issues of sex and sexuality with their children. We, we often, during this workshop, let Latino parents know that, you know, in the survey, when Latino parents were asked if they would support comprehensive sex ed, after being explained what the elements were of comprehensive sex ed, that it had to be unbiased, that it should be culturally um, and linguistically relevant and, and age-appropriate, um, that it should include discussion of not just abstinence, but also prevention. And um, when this type of dialogue is able to happen with parents, um, parents um, surveyed from the Public Health Institute, you know, they found that 90% of Latino parents actually would support comprehensive sex ed. And we really lead with this because it is a way of, of sort of challenging the idea that's out there that Latino parents wouldn't support sexual health education with their youth about issues of sex and sexuality. And most of the time they're able to identify that they themselves 
depending on country of origin, depending on age, depending on a number of factors, even the, some of the younger Latino parents who may have been born here, most of them in most rooms acknowledge that they didn't have good conversation or education around sexual health. And so then they weren't able to pass that information on to their children. LaRonda Crosby-Johnson, you've been working not only inside the classroom, but also with parents and community members for 30 years now around sexuality education. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you've seen and perhaps how things have changed in those 30 years? I think some of the most rewarding work for me has been the work with parents who come to this conversation sometimes very nervous. You know, many parents didn't receive this type of education in schools, and certainly a lot of families weren't discussing this topic. And that seems to be what drives a lot of the fear around this subject area. That's just not something that takes place in normal conversation. I think when you get an opportunity to work with parents and you get them to increase their comfort and understanding around the topic area, that opens up conversation with their children. So as a a health educator who's been in classrooms with young people, for me it felt almost ridiculous to just have the conversation with young people without having it with the adults who impact and influence their lives far more than I would. So I've seen those kind of coming together of those two worlds where when young people get the information, they go home and talk to their parents about it, which is always encouraged. We want you talking to the adults that care about you the most. And parents loosen up a little bit about it. They realize they don't have to know all the answers. I think that's probably the number one concern or fear that I hear from parents. Like, if I say something about this and I don't know the answer, what do I do? And I tell them, you say, I don't know. You know, we'll find it out together. But to just have the conversation, know that the place is available for your child to talk to you about it. Gabriela Valle, you're the Director of Community Education and Mobilization for California Latinas for Reproductive Justice. So you do this work with parents, with community members. Can you talk to us about how you think Latino families or perhaps marginalized communities in general if they feel effects more so when these absence only until marriage or medically inaccurate curriculums get put into the classroom? Parents often, especially immigrant parents, often assume a almost too positive view of what the education is that their students are getting. So they might assume that their kids are already getting some information about development and their body and what to expect. And then we start having conversation and they realize that's not happening. They also assume that the information that their kids are going to get will be accurate, and this assumption comes from what we're in this country now, right? So our students are coming to school in the U.S. There's a certain expectation of what curriculum might look like. So most young people across the U.S., and we certainly are talking about California, where we look really good on paper. We look as though this is a state where young people should have the right um, lawfully to access comprehensive sex ed, that that should be what's offered in their school. But because it's not mandatory is is why we see and hear the different stories. So on one hand, young people are not either not getting good comprehensive sex ed or in many cases not getting any sex ed at all. Oftentimes we'll see that administrators will find ways to get out of this or, or cover sex ed in three days somewhere in between driver's ed training and some other curriculum. Yet you look at the statistics for 
adolescent pregnancy in the state, and then oftentimes those numbers are really directly pointed towards Latinos, and your number for adolescent pregnancies are really high. So we didn't prepare the young person with enough information or education. We don't have a lot of programs that support parents in having this dialogue with their um, kids as they're interested in, but we will blame youth for STDs, STIs, for, HIV, for contracting HIV, for um, adolescent pregnancy. They're the ones that pay the price when we as the adults are not giving them the education that they need and they deserve, and, and in California, they have a right to it. But we find oftentimes that administrators are operating off of their own belief system or sometimes their own misinformation, they assume that parents, whether it's Latino parents or African-American parents, they're assuming, oh, well, if we do too much around sex education, the parents are going to complain. Yet they probably, in most cases, haven't even talked to parents to find out what it is that people want. That was Gabriela Valle with California Latinas for Reproductive Justice. I'm Julieta Kuznid. You're listening to Making Contact. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. We now return to a roundtable discussion on comprehensive sex ed, hosted by Julieta Kuznir and featuring Felita Berlingame, LaRonda Crosby-Johnson, and Gabriela Valle. So both Gabriela and LaRonda have talked about a law which is now on the books, the 2004 legislation which was enacted stating schools in California may not use abstinence only until marriage curriculum to teach sex education. Can you talk to us about the law and how this has played out? The law, um, we really like to think about it as sort of a reproductive justice or even, you know, in some respects, a civil rights law. It's got a lot of different aspects. It has a requirement that curriculum be accessible to English language learners, students with disabilities, similarly it has to um, be appropriate for students of all sexual orientations, students of all genders. Uh, it needs to include medically accurate information and provide information about all FDA-approved methods of contraception as well as about abstinence. So it's not just saying, you know, you have to cover abstinence, you have to cover contraception. It's also saying who are all the students in the classroom and how can we make sure that effective health information that's going to be free of bias is being taught to them as well as to the students sitting, um, you know, to the, to the side of them. And that's a really exciting law to have on the books. As we've all been saying, the challenge comes in implementation. Gabriela, can you talk to us a little bit more about barriers that immigrant communities face to receiving quality sexual health information? 
Some of the um, anecdotal stories that we have from working with young folks and, and again, from hearing from their parents is that if you take a, a group of, for example, English language learners, if we're finding that English-speaking students aren't getting either enough or adequate comprehensive sex ed, take English language learners from any cultural background, and you've now exacerbated that problem times 10. Very few schools have curriculum available to them in any other uh, language. Oftentimes, it's left to the discretion of the school or the teacher. Um, you layer that with the fact that Latinas in California are the most uninsured young women from um, teens up into their early 20s. We represent the highest number of, of uninsured people in the state of California. And that net is really wide. I mean, it really includes young men and women at the age where they're going to be the most in need to access services. Philida mentioned the Central Valley, and this is an area that California Latinas for Reproductive Justice has been working in for a few years, like ACLU, and um, a lot of our work um, overlaps in different areas. And I wanted to say that we actually have, like, a small, but we have a positive, a good story that we wanted to share. Um, we've been doing some work in Visalia in the Central Valley. We took on working with a local community organization there, Act for Women and Girls, really good allies, and we were already doing work with their young women. They do a leadership training for young women in the Central Valley, in Visalia. Um, one of the groups of young women had this very heartfelt and, and lived experience is where they were coming from when they wanted to work on comprehensive sex ed in their area. So we took on dealing with just one, one school district, which was the Visalia School District. We got the young women ready to go and speak to the school board to talk about the issues and the, and the need for better comprehensive sex ed, the need for having the same information across the board. With such a small group of, and they were mostly young Latino women from the community, they did all their homework, they were able to do the research, and they, they were able to show the school district that with four high schools in this district, there was four different books in terms of the curriculum that they were exposed to around um, sex education. One of the books was incredibly outdated and actually had in it some really offensive language when it came to the issue of HIV and AIDS that still made it sound like, well, HIV and AIDS is a gay man's issue. Um, that is completely irresponsible for that to be happening in 2009 and 2010 when we know HIV so greatly is affecting communities of color, particularly women. And so um, doing this work together, it's a small step, but this, this is where reproductive justice work really needs to be and wants to go. Um, so our win from this comes from the young women going to the Visalia School Board and calling them on it, saying to them, can you explain to us, you are the adults, we're the students, can you explain to us why it is that we have curriculum that's old and outdated and isn't comprehensive? And California state law says we have a right to have comprehensive sex ed if we're going to have sex education covered at all. And um, can you talk to us about how if a parent is listening or someone who's just very concerned around this issue, how can they get involved in their school district? There is an assumption on many parents that their schools are going to be teaching their students accurate good information. I think we all come to the school system with the belief that 
they're going to be teaching our kids the right thing. And unfortunately, in this particular subject area, that's not always the case. So the first thing I would say is to people listening, find out what sex education is being taught in your school district. Um, and if they say, oh, well, we're teaching abstinence plus or something like that, dig deeper um, because these can often be code words for education that's not really education. It's political indoctrination, and it should not be in the classroom. So that's the first thing I would say. Find out what's being taught. And if what's being taught is medically inaccurate, if it's biased, if it's political ideology, uh, you know, under the guise of health education, then go to the superintendent and say, even if you're not a parent, as a taxpayer in this district, this is not what we should be teaching our young people. That is, uh, that was a dispatch from making contact on sex education in the schools. Earlier, we broadcast the talk given by Olympic two-time gold medalist in 1988, Greg Luganis, a UCI alum, who came back to his first graduation ever and spoke about being HIV positive for 23 years since the time he got those gold medals in the Olympics, and it's not a death sentence, he says, at least in the U.S., I think, and in the West. This is Dan Zhang. We're signing off for Subversity here. Um, we're taking a hiatus uh, for the summer, and hopefully we'll be back in the fall. But in the meantime, we'll be uh, doing our show online. Uh, coming up, The Dread Zone. <laughs>